let's say you buy it on January the 1st, right? And let's say that by April the 1st, <clears throat> you bought it at 90. Let's say by April the 1st, you're done. And that thing yeah. could, you might even have an appraisal at 120 on it. Mm -hmm. Because you're within that six months, nobody cares about that appraisal. <laughs>
I can't make a beautiful painting. I'm not a sales guy. So, like I said, so then I got into operations at Title uh, Processing. Uh, did that for close to a year. Um, made good friends with one of their mortgage clients. Went to process mortgages. So by now, I've probably been in the business three years, maybe three or four years. And that mortgage guy and I opened a title company. Had that for five or six years. I left that to go open a mortgage processing company. Somehow, through all of these sort of different places I've been at and different roles I've worked, I finally realized I don't need to sell anything to anybody. In other words, all I have to do, so if Paul comes to me for a mortgage, I'm just here to help Paul. I'm here to answer Paul's questions, explain how the process works, why does it have to be this way, why can't it be that way. And it was, it was a bit of, a, of an eye-opener in the sense that my previous experience had been that sales was a an aggressive thing you like I said you knock them on the head till they submit and so that was really empowering in the sense that I realized wait a minute all I have to do is know what I'm talking about and again by now I've probably been in the business 10 12 years mm -hmm. and so I eventually shifted from processing had a processing company for a few years I finally shifted from processing to actually originating so back in a sales role but it's it's night and day different than when I started because again it's I don't have, you know, if Paul doesn't want a mortgage, I'm not here to knock him to beat him into having a mortgage. So my, my role I'm, I'm realizing is really, it's not even so much sales. It's I'm here to facilitate the process and I'm here to advise you on the process. I don't need any slick sales ability or good line of BS because I'm just here to help you and answer your questions and explain how it works. So that's in a nutshell, that's been my experience. So it, it was a painful, there were certain parts of that journey that were pretty painful and humbling. But I think it's for my personality type, it's probably the only way that I could have actually had success in this business was to learn it from the inside out. Sure. Yeah, I think in today's day and age, uh, there's a big difference between being a salesman, you know, a pitch man or a problem solver. That's exactly it. So problem solving is, is and, and I'm glad you use that's a good term. It's there's a lot of loan officers who are what I call order takers, which is they'll say they'll get a call from Paul. Hey, I want to buy a house, 300,000. I'm going to put 20% down. And most loan officers say, okay, Paul, here's your rates and fees right, and your pre-approval. Call me when you're under contract. And the reality is there's so much more that a loan officer should be doing for you. They should be advising you what's the best strategy to how do you structure your offer? Um, you know, every buyer wants to pay less than every seller wants to receive. So, as a as a loan officer from a truly advisory role, it's up to me to help strike that balance between how do we achieve what you want, whether it's payment and sales price, and how do we achieve what the seller wants, whether it's net proceeds or how quickly can we get to the closing table. So I've had a lot of success as the advisor role more than the order taker because, you know, I'm active throughout the process. So I play offense to get the offer accepted just as much as the real estate agent does. So sure. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so as as the market's kind of shifted from the foreclosure days to now, it's it's really screaming it at uh, you know at full speed. How are you able to help real estate investors? Um, you know, what kind of programs are out there? What's changed since let's say twelve, thirteen, fourteen to now? Yeah, good question. Yeah. So so um, like like some of the folks said on the last podcast, I mean, it it can be challenging to to find an investment property on the MLS and still have it cash flow positive. In other words, you know, the, the, 
obviously, you know, the investor wants to buy for as cheap as possible to minimize any housing expense that they have aside from taxes and insurance. So they want to borrow as little as possible. Um, at the same time, what one of the big changes we've had in the past several years is back in the old days, let's say I have my home that I live in and I want to buy a, a property to rent out. Well, there was a time where I had to qualify to qualify for the new mortgage on the investment property. I had to be able to carry my my own mortgage payment, taxes and insurance on the house I live in and the housing expenses of the property I want to buy. Nowadays, we can there's a um, there's a, a, a there's a way that we can essentially utilize projected rental income from the property you will be buying to help offset those expenses. So they don't necessarily need the reserves that they did three or four years back. Not only just the reserves, we still need reserves on rentals and it's that varies for how many rentals and this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, but the main thing is, you know, from an income perspective or a debt ratio perspective, they don't need to be able to carry that full uh, investment property housing payment because, gotcha. the, you know, because the presumption is, well, that's going to get rented out. That's the purpose of the purchase. So they let us apply projected rental income to offset that. that housing sure. Expense. So you can essentially have a little bit higher DTI than what was previous. Well, well, yeah, I mean, the, the DTI limits are still the same, but they they let us they let us apply projected rental income to offset the new housing expense, I guess is the way to put it. Even if it's an empty property at that time. Yeah, exactly. Okay, if it's not in service yet. That correct. Makes sense. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's a good point, Dylan. So if it's already tenanted, we just need to show that the, that the lease will, will, you know, that the new owner will overtake the lease. And, um, and that's one way to do it. And if that's not the case, like you said, if it's vacant or if the tenant's going to leave, um, you know, when the ownership changes, then we can just use projected rental income. Okay. So, Paul, you do a lot of uh, out-of-state investing, and you use the BRRRRRR strategy. I always get confused, even though I've, I've been a bigger pocket since the early days. But why don't you break down uh, BRRR? It's three R's or four. Four. Four, four R's. Four R's. But break that down for us, and, and maybe you guys can okay. talk a little bit about how that works. Yeah, so mortgage brokers, banks are very important to the process. So the way BRRR uh, investing is buy uh, rehab rent out, refinance, and then repeat. So four R's. Um, so it, the term was coined on bigger pockets. I think people have been doing it for a long time before then. Um, but it's an extremely po powerful uh, process because uh, if you've got $90,000 and that's it, um, you can put $90,000 in a house. And if you buy right and rehab right, um, you can refinance almost all of the money back out of it. Um, so some of my, my strategy there is, um, making sure that the numbers work from cash flow perspective. So it's got to be able to pay the mortgage, but also when I buy, I want to make sure that I'm going to purchase plus rehab, uh, 75% of what the, what the IR, ARV will be, uh, the after repair value. Um, and if you do that, right, you can pull a, a large majority or almost all of it out, uh, of the deal. So that's, that's my strategy that I use right now. So, you know, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. If, if I'm a, um, a new investor coming to you with sure. that strategy, um, you know, what are some of the terms that you guys are uh, products that you guys work with, uh, to be able to enable that kind of a process? So that's a good question. So, you know, for the most part, any, whether you walk into Chase, Bank of America, Fifth Third, caliber home loans, any of the, the, the big players, if you will, anybody who's, you know, uh, who's works with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac products, they all pretty much have the same rules. Yeah. Um, so like you said, Paul, the strategy of buy, rehab, 
rent refinance to pull the cash back out. That's yeah. I, I see that's common with a lot of my clients. Um, so to your point, you know, you just have to make sure that you have a good handle on the post rehab value so that you're not disappointed when you go to refinance and you can only pull out far less than you thought you could. Right. Right. Um, now with, now with that in mind, um, and I think you and I talked about this when we met a couple of days ago, Paul, mm -hmm. um, at, at the Macomb Rhea meeting, um, Fannie and Freddie require that you, that the title has to season for six months before you can pull the cash out. Right. Um, there is an exception called delayed financing yeah. where, um, you can refinance up to 75% of the, not, not even of the, well, I suppose they should presumably should be even, but of the, of the, of what you paid for the property. Yeah. So Tia and I were just talking about that within the seasoning period, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, so without having to wait six months, you can do that. Now we of course have to be able to document the, where the funds came from. Um, yeah. so, um, so if, if, if you got money, if you and a partner went in, uh, we just have to essentially separate whose money was whose, or you may both have to be on the loan to pull it out. But yeah, right. but there, there are, that's, that's, um, that's absolutely, uh, doable if you will. Right. Um, Beyond that, there are some there are some lenders that will that don't uh, that don't require the six month seasoning before mm -hmm. a cash out on a rental property. Yeah. Um, typically, those are going to be what they call portfolio products. Yeah. Which yep. is so. Let's say uh, I'm going to make this up. Let's say um, one, two, three mortgage company. Uh, they might be able to do that without the six month waiting period. Mm -hmm. But when we say it's a portfolio product, what that means is they're going to hold the note. They're going to hold the debt themselves. Yeah. They're not going to sell it on a secondary market to all mm -hmm. these, you know, Wells Fargo, Mr. Cooper, yep. the Fannie Freddie players. Um, and so, of course, the the price for that is you're typically going to pay a premium on the interest rate. Yep. Um, you know, and again, the thought process is, well, we're the only we're the only payers in town that will do this for you. If you don't want to wait six months, this is the cost to you. Right, right, right. So, um, Tio and I was, uh, literally were just having that exact conversation because he's got a guy that he sent me to that said he could do it next day. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, I asked him, well, what kind of interest rates and terms? He's like, well, I don't know about that. So I was imagining, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I was imagining that, you know, the rates were going to be a little bit higher. So, um, those, the, the seasoning period, that's a real challenge for the burr process. So I want to talk a little bit of, and I don't want to hijack things. So you stop me, Dylan, but, um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, trying to find a way to, to shorten that. So, you know, let's say I want to go in and buy a property and I've got, um, you know, $120,000 in cash, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm buying it for 90 and I'm going to rehab it for 30. Okay. Is there a way that on the HUD, you know, during closing, I can put that 30,000 into an escrow account and I can pay the, you know, they'll distribute the cash to the, to the seller and so on the HUD, when I if I were to go to a traditional bank and say, "Hey, I paid 130 for this property, now I want to do a cash out refinance," um, is there a, is there a, like a, a trick or a strategy that can be done there with the way that you title and you escrow money? Because I've heard through some you know bigger pockets and others that there's some kind of a strategy that they can. Now I I don't have that kind of capital to just put it all in like that. Sure, but my goal is to try to find. A strategy where I can do these cash out refinances faster, because sure. then I can move my money faster. Sure, right? sure, yeah. And, and if I'm understanding your your question correctly, not really, not that I'm aware of anyway. Okay. In other words, the the, the limiting factor, if you want to call it that, on the delayed financing exception, 
is that you can only refinance up to the sales price. Yeah. So if you put in, if the sales price was 90, that's your, and, and you can take out 75% of that. Right. 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 So, um, and listen, even if let's say you buy it on January the 1st, right. And let's say that by April the 1st, <clears throat> you bought it at 90. Let's say by April the 1st, you're done. And that thing yeah. could, you might even have an appraisal at 120 on it. Mm-hmm. Because you're within that six months, nobody cares about that appraisal. Right. You're right, limited right. to the initial sales price. Mm-hmm. So the only way to avoid that, it's almost, I guess, one or the other is the answer to your question, right? Right. You can pull out money within the six months, but you're you're going to be limited to um, the sales price, yeah. regardless of what you put in, even if you put that extra 30 for the rehab and escrow. Mm-hmm. That's not into the transaction in the sense that it right. wasn't part of the sales price, right? Okay. It yeah. might be into your investment, but not the actual purchase of the property. Right, right. Okay. So, yeah, within the first six months, you're limited to 75% of the sales price. Uh, after the six months, so if you want to go on June the 2nd, let's say, right? Yeah. Then now if it appraises for 125, you can take out 75% of the 125 or 120, okay. whatever the number right, is. Right. Yep. Okay, got it. Got yeah, it. but on, on that scenario, could it, couldn't you just, I mean, you're going to end up paying more in fees, but take the refinance at the purchase time six to nine months later once you're up and rented or even wait a little longer because right now you're also gambling that rates are good you're going to have the same terms in six to nine months and values you know you could see values drop too yeah point yeah where where if you if you purchase it finance it pull your equity out at least maybe you're not getting the 120 but you're getting the 90 back or 75 percent of the 90 that you can deploy into other opportunities correct and it's not going to be the best win but it's still and then you just look at that spread as the cost of doing business that's exactly it and it's you know i suppose it's one of these things where how badly how badly do you need the money um and uh, you know can you settle with 75 percent of 90 or do you want to like to your point about who knows what's going to happen with rates and values you know you can sort of take the money and run now at 75 five percent of the sales price of 90 mm-hmm. or you can let it ride and then you know presumably you know once the rehab is done appraisal after six months and then take out 75 percent of 120 and right, i'm sure right, you'd right. love to write a second mortgage also so. i'm here to help <laughs> <laughs> i'm here to help but no but, and again back to the whole advisory <laughs> role i guess that i see myself as it's i mean I, I i deal with this with clients all the time and it's you know brian should i take the money out now i don't know how badly do you need it you know can you you know is this a do you have something lined up? Is it a sure thing? Or do you just want the warm and fuzzies of having the pile of money before rates may go up and values may go down? Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's on a case by case basis, you know, and we right. kind of navigate that together. Right. Yeah. So in my strategy, you know, uh, so far it seems like I've got to wait the seasoning period because in my strategy, my goal is to eventually get to the point where I buy and rehab right enough where I can pull a hundred percent of the cash that's in it. Even if I'm using a hard money lender to initially rehab it right sure i want to be able to cash them out and it you know what i get back out of that is going to pay them off and the fees and you know whatever uh that's in the transaction so that's kind of my been my quest and every house i get to i leave you know smaller and smaller amounts of money in the deal which Correct. the cash on cash goes higher and higher right so I'm, that's my my ultimate goal and if I could figure out a way with maybe a portfolio lender i may be willing to pay five you know well six seven eight percent if i could pull it out yeah 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 it, i mean it's yeah five, you're probably gonna i'm shooting from the hip here probably seven eight nine ten percent yeah but again but to your point i mean that's in what Frank 30 said. 30 or am no no balloon year. correct correct and so what so back to your point frank i mean like you know 
everybody loves to tell their neighbor what a sexy interest rate they have, right? I'm at four and an eighth, whatever. The, the reality is, it's whether it's you and your neighbor and your primary homes, you know, the interest rate is a it's a function of the snapshot of the of of the market and the circumstances when you bought your house, right? Yeah. They might have bought at a time when the market was higher. You might have bought when it was lower. At the same time, on an investment property, again, everybody loves the idea of telling their buddies how low their rate is. But the fact is, nobody knows the underlying circumstances behind that. So in other yeah. words, yes, you might you might be paying through the nose on a portfolio product, but did you get your money? Yes. So did it? Is that the cost of, of to the cost of business to get the money out before uh, maybe having to wait until it's season six months? Sure. Yeah. Know. Well, my thought is, is I, I'll pay 8%. If it's going to cash flow $200, $300 a month, yep. right? And I've left $0 in the deal, $300 a month on a $0 investment, just my time, that's a hundred. That's an infinite amount cash on cash ROI, right? Mm -hmm. It's like driving down you know the street, finding a fully rehabbed property and somebody giving it to you. Frank, right. Frank, what's your take on that from a traditional finance standpoint? I mean, from the finance standpoint, it's really just how much you have in there and how you can really maximize that investment. I mean, 10% sounds like a bad rate, but however, if it works into a good deal. Sure, if you I bought mean, the house for 10000 it doesn't matter what the rate is. It, yeah, and it's like you're saying, everybody likes to talk about your personal residence. And, you know, I know 10 years ago you had the investors, but then you had everyone else out refinancing their own homes and talking about how low their payment was and how how their interest rates and didn't even know what any of that meant. And really it's, can you deploy those assets into other income producing assets as opposed to That's it. go yeah, buy a boat exactly. or Corvette and stuff sure. like that, that we had put us into what we got into. So, yeah. but I think what you're saying really, and then it's t taking your money out and it's really that cash flow of that life cycle. Mm -hmm. And then it's really the evolution of that real estate investing career, getting into a new opportunity or uh, how you're going to really structure that because at that point you have no equity in and now if, if you strategize you can effectively never pay tax on that transaction exactly through to the date of your death exactly and keeping my money moving right and unfortunately the banks that have this six-month seasoning where they're you know they've got a, a a cadence that you know they're slowing you down on how fast you can move your money sure right? yeah and a lot of it is, you know, the bank, the banks don't want you out buying 10 properties, at least without that track record. Right. But as you're building in that track record, there's opportunities for larger deals or to attract other outside investors. Yeah. Or, I mean, effectively, you could have you could structure a deal that you don't put a penny of your own money in mm -hmm. and have outside investors. And it's really with these smaller deals showing that return that you have there. Yeah. So. Well, I got to tell you something. This is high level stuff because uh, I, all I'm good at is making posts on Facebook and running real estate groups. So <laughs> I'm here with three guys way smarter than me. And really, that's what this group's all about. It's about bringing value and um, kind of learning through real life experience on how these situations can help you guys buy and sell real estate and maybe invest before um, or in different ways that you didn't know possible. So um I guess um, next question um, for, for Brian is uh, where do you see, and, and even Frank too, I want to hear from you guys. You guys are a little bit more on the, the serious finance side. Where do you guys see the, uh, the economy going over the next, um, maybe let's just say year until the, uh, until the new election comes? I'll, I'll defer to Frank on this. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, right now, uh, think 
think things seem to be trekking along and I think there's a lot of just political uncertainty mm -hmm. and uh, love or hate politics. Uh, right now we have a real estate friendly uh, administration in place uh, and can that all change and, and after the new election, yes, things can change. Can it change it drastically? Not necessarily, but um, there, things can change and not be as favorable. Some of the overall economy, which would trickle through to interest rates, which is going to impact the values of the real estate and different cap rates, and so it w could have an indirect impact from other standpoints. Right now, we're in a great real estate um, administration that's real estate friendly and. A, a lot of the opportunities they have in place and it really just depends uh, so I don't really foresee much happening I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction and the whole political landscape out there and people are just kind of sitting tight so um, you know I think the state of Michigan's gone to a Democratic governor which has you know changed some and some of the outlooks so um, I think we're kind of in a holding pattern at this point yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think what you want newer to people, newer newer real estate investors to understand is that when rates go up, typically values come down a little bit because people can't afford. We're not talking about investors. We're talking about the homeowners. So if you're going to buy that $400,000 home and rates are four and they go up to five, you can't afford that anymore. Yeah, it's a big difference. It changes huge. And for those of us, I mean, Frank's, Frank's the same age as me. So he was around during the foreclosure boom, but he wasn't fully focused in real estate, I don't believe like I was, or Brian was yeah. in real estate at the time. I was focused on just keeping my lights on at home. <laughs> yeah, right. So we know what it was like. I mean, it was utter chaos and destruction. Oh, yeah. So it's not going to get back there because the foreclosure days, right. um, you know, with, with all of the arms resetting and all that crazy stuff. And again, you said fog the mirror mortgages. One of you guys said that. Yeah. It's a lot tougher, yeah. even though it's gotten easier the last four or five years. I do know that, but it's a lot tougher to get financing than it was way back in yeah. 05, 04. But like during that period, you had a lot of builders and developers that could develop any vacant tract of land and anybody that uh, for $300 a month could be in a $400,000. Sure. Yeah, with the negative building, mortgage. Yeah, 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 with all the mortgage products that were out there and mortgage people were saying refinance every six months and we're going to yep. be out there. And those products have really gone away which closed up a lot of the development and a lot of the building businesses. And there's a lot more cash backing those deals now. Yeah, and maybe Correct. a little more ethics or things sure. out there out in the marketplace these days. Yep. Yeah, the appraisals are all different. We just had John Manzo at, at the RIA yeah. talking about that. And uh, with appraisal management companies, I mean, things have changed so much. John, you, you don't know John Manzo, do you? Yeah, but, yeah well, I mean, just uh, I, I've known you know the name. name? And, yeah. yeah, I met him at the, uh, at the RIA meeting. Oh, you were there, right. Sorry. So John's been around 25 years, and he was there before the foreclosure boom, during and after. And um, he was talking about he could get three appraisals done himself um, each day. Not necessarily taking the pictures and going out and measuring them, but doing all the, the processing back at, back at the home office. Now it's one for a day and a half because they're so much stricter, which is good because... It just means it's going to be a lot tougher for, for people exactly to go it. into foreclosure. We don't want that to happen as investors. Everybody talks about the good old days. We, we were literally shooting fish in a barrel and, and just buying properties. I mean, I, I offered 40 cents on the dollar on thousands of properties a month back in the old days. You know, we were making 100 offers a day. And I didn't look at a house unless we got a counter offer and it started at 40. 40% 40 of <laughs> ask. So it was yep. nuts. So it's, it's probably never going to get like that again. But um, I think it's good for us to be poised as investors just to make sure that we are being conservative. You know, Paul's being conservative. He's buying stuff that's cash flowing. So 
can he get hurt? Maybe, but rents go down a little bit. Even in the bad days, rents to go down like 200 bucks a month on a $900 rent. Most of them didn't go down two. They went down one. So you were still okay. It still serviced the debt. But the rents today are higher than they were on those They're same properties. Astronomical. Yeah. Yeah, you can where... you can get properties outside the city of Detroit um, in lower Macomb and Oakland County in the thirty to fifty thousand dollar range and earn nine hundred a month all day long. Oh yeah, that's huge. But we never we never had that opportunity before. Something that was interesting that John said during the RIA is that the the owners of properties today, you know, investors as well as uh, primary residence owners, the, the 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 base ownership is a lot more qualified for the properties that they own, right? And I think during the the foreclosure crisis, what really once you start picking at the thread, right, just like a cheap rug, it just came on because you know um, as the rates went up and these uh, individuals that weren't qualified to be in the homes that they were in, it just all like a house of cards. So mm -hmm. I agree with John and, and the feedback that I've heard from a lot of people is that it unlikely will get to that point because so many people the Fed, are in the homes Fed today. won't let it because it hasn't let it get there. Well, right. yeah, and it, I mean that the, false base hasn't been rebuilt. Well, right. yeah, exactly. And so many of those products that could, I mean, there were a lot of things that contributed to the crash, right? In oh seven, eight, nine. But I mean, back then you could have a house, you could have a house that's worth a hundred thousand dollars, and they'll give you a loan that's they'll give you a loan for one hundred and twenty-five. You know, right. I mean, you're, you're literally like upside down the day you LTV, close. Right? Do you exactly. guys remember the 40-year interest only that yep. popped up it, right before correct. everything? Yep. I saw yep. that. I was like, good right. God, I've never seen anything right. like that. Right. And I mean, Frank's a CPA. He's, he's a finance expert, especially at this table. So when he's laughing, it tells you how scary it is that a product is out there that a normal homeowner can literally light a wick to a bomb and set it on their kitchen table and just hope that it blows out. Yeah. And that's yeah. what they set us up <laughs> yeah. for. That's why it won't happen again. Yeah. It won't happen again. They they won't let that happen. I mean, not not in the near future. Although as an investor, I wish I was around back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. money. A, it was it was on a cash flowing property. If the numbers work, 110 LTV, I could pull all that cash back sure. out. And, I, and even do it again cash, and again and again and if again. If that cash flows is two hundred dollars, it is still a great deal, right? right? Sure. Great deal for you, but then if you know when when the house of cards collapses, the bank stops holding the bag, and they right. say, "Wait a minute, we you know we are owed you know another ten grand on this property versus what it's actually worth." Right, and of course we have legal fees, all this jazz, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, if you know when those foreclosures, there there was no equity left, right? There's, Correct. Yeah, there 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 is no financing. Right. I mean, it was so tough to get a mortgage back then to to get a property. I remember we had a, I had a property in. Um, in, in a good part of uh, Macomb County, and it was a 3,000 square foot, big old 70s colonial, probably sold for 280. It was in it was in the Fraser School District um, in the old days, maybe 300 um, pre-crash, so say 2004. In 2009, I sold that on a mortgage for like 189. That was with granite and new oh, bathrooms. Sure, I believe it for 3,000 square feet at 16 in wow. Garfield, which. You know, we're, I'm I'm kind of boxing us in here. We are a local uh, show, but I mean that, that's crazy. Today, that's going to be 100 bucks a square foot again, mm -hmm. yeah, or yep. close to it, anyways. Yeah. So, I think we still got a little bit of time, but I I, I think maybe in the in the next two minutes for each of us, why don't you guys tell us what maybe your short term goal is over the next year or so in business? Maybe what you're working on now, something kind of exciting that's happening, and um, just to get the uh, the the watchers and listeners here to learn a little bit about. Uh, yourself and your own business personality. Want me to start? Sure. Okay. Um, so, you know, number one, uh, I am currently looking for 
partners, uh, money partners to go in. You know, the limiting factor for me right now, I've got a huge stream of deals and I don't have the capital to close on them, right? So really looking for people to partner with me. Um, I'm closing on a duplex uh, next week. This is the first purchase with a hard money lender. So I'm closing on that duplex. And, uh, you know, uh, here in the fall, I've, I've bought several of them this spring. Um, and so now I'm just waiting for that seasoning, right? right? Sure. And I'm going to probably do, what, three or four closings this fall as all of those come available, sure. you know, with the seasoning. And then I'm probably going to, you know, suck that capital into, you know, uh, an account and then get ready to, to go get it again uh, next year. So, uh, and my goal is 31 doors. So that's my, awesome. kind of my freedom number to get to. We're going to go around no. the table. <laughs> Frank? Uh, right now, just uh, looking to uh, provide myself as a resource to everybody in the group, uh, along with network, and in the next six months to a year, looking to get more involved on the active side myself uh, and just uh, become more of part of the group. So, so Frank, um, Frank's very humble, by the way. Um, I know that Lori, your wife, you guys have a bookkeeping service. I don't know anything about it, oh. but why don't you tell us what, what it is, what you guys offer and how it works? Oh, so, uh, my, my wife's a, uh, actually a bookkeeper and, uh, uh, works, works with different investors and, uh, management companies on from, uh, the day-to-day -day QuickBooks, uh, management side of things and uh, all the way through, uh, she has a few commercial properties that she's actually dealing with the individual tenants and uh, uh, one of her newer uh, clients um, actually had missed some lease escalations over time and she was able to quantify that and really rent value had, add huge rent rent had never changed uh, since 98 come to wow. find out and what's wrong with that if you're the tenant and <laughs> right well, exactly well well then when she quantified it and was able to provide it to her client um uh, it was i think it was two hundred sixty thousand of missed uh Oof. rent so they're actually going through the process and there were there was some estate issues and different things with this uh company uh so it was really drilling down to more than just the balance banking uh and what she's able to identify, a lot of small owners don't necessarily need the day-to-day -day CPA and uh, um, services, um, and it's really just that more hand-holding, the accounting and that type sure. of service. So I've uh, been able to do that, but uh, and I'm always looking to talk to investors. I get questions on what would be the best strategy for them and how do they structure. It really depends. A single person with no family compared to a person with a family starting out to older how do you what are you going to do how are you going to structure what are you going to do with the tax recapture on when you've taken out your equity or are you going to flip into more of a passive investment when you go off into the sunset what's your real long-term plans and i hear a lot of short-term planning um and it's really it might be beyond where somebody's thinking mm -hmm. but at least getting those wheels out there that they know because um, I actually um, got a call from a, a client that a uh, 48-year-old uh, son had had a heart attack, passed away, had no will, and I actually had a family member pass away this year, and um, there, there, there was a home tied up with a few other siblings, and there was no will, trust, or anything. I tend to kind of stay out of my family situations, and 
um, that's a situation. There was no will. It's a home that's going to have to be probated uh, sure. for these other family members sure. because nobody talked and planned. Yeah, we're so. going to dig really deep. Uh, David Sobel, our resident genius attorney, as I like to call him, uh, I'm going to get him on him and Frank on here, and I'm going to hold them both down because I'm bigger. <laughs> I'm not much bigger than Sobel, but I think I got a few pounds. I'm going to hold them both down, and we're going to get really in the weeds um, with some of this advanced strategy stuff. and the probate, how that's affected from the finance side and the legal side and, and just some other, um, some really high level stuff. So okay. pretty soon we'll definitely get into that Okay, because, uh, you know, the, the value that Frank adds to this group is huge. Um, like I said, he's very humble. So Mr. Mutter. So what, you can do the goals, right? For the next year. Yeah. In your radio voice, please. Well, my goals. No, it would be exhausting, for, at least for me, to do the whole show like that. So um, you'll have to I'd wait have to till, till we're off head. air. Yeah. Right, right, With right. With a towel. No, so, you know, it's, and Frank just said um, kind of like the crux of, of my mission, if you want to call it that, is the education piece, right? So in, in the general sense, um, I have kind of two, two goals here, right? In the general sense, you know, it's when I started back originating mortgages and dealing with buyers, I mean, right away, it's apparent to me that not even just for first time buyers, of course, but I was surprised how many, how many clients that I'd meet with, this was, let's say their third home they're buying and it's their sixth mortgage because they've refinanced in the past. And it, it blew me away. How many of these folks still don't understand anything about their numbers at the closing? Why do I have to bring this much? Well, you told me I had to bring in, you know, I'm putting down 10%. The house is worth 300,000 is what I'm paying for it. Why do I have to bring in 37,000? 10%. So, you know, and all the way down to what's, what's my escrow account? Yeah. I've seen this in the past. Why do you guys take this money up front? So it, it just made me realize there's a huge need for education, not just on for my direct clients, if you will, the people borrowing the money to buy the house, but on their, so most of those clients come to me because they're referred from real estate agents. So on the, on the professional side, I guess you'd call it, I'm finding a lot of realtors, either don't understand or maybe just don't value the, the role of a good loan officer for their client. Um, I said before, I use the order taker analogy, you know, that's kind of like the, the bare minimum, if you will. Right. But a mortgage isn't exactly, it's not a commodity. It's not like, um, the store brand lucky charms is the same as the lucky charms that are six bucks a box. Um, you know, a, a, a good loan officer should be an equal partner in getting the offer structured, getting the offer accepted, and then obviously providing a smooth mortgage and closing experience. Um, so, um, so back to the question, one of my missions for this year is to just keep on educating on the professional side, the realtors, the importance of a loan officer who knows what he's doing. It's not a mortgage isn't a, a, a punch list item when you're working with the buyer for the house. Um, no, your, your mortgage lender is your, is, is a partner on the deal with you. Well, and, and you'd be surprised how many, how many realtors, like I said, either don't understand or don't value that. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's not uncommon for a realtor to say, Oh, Brian, I, I have, you know, I, I just got a new buyer, but he's already been pre-approved and I don't want to rock the boat. And that's completely fine. And listen, maybe he's pre-approved with his uncle, who's a mortgage guy or the guy who's done his last six mortgages. And he's comfortable. That's fine. But you know, we run into this all the time where the realtors just say, well, he's pre-approved. I, 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 we have a deal closing next week. The client came to me, Hey, Brian, I'm pre-approved. I'm under contract to close on May the 2nd, but now I'm shopping rates and fees. What can you do for me? We go through the whole, through the whole back and forth, literally probably 10, 10 conversations we had, you know, we skin the cat 50 different ways. What if we put down 3%? What if we put down 20%? What if we have it in my wife, 
my wife's name only, my wife and I, we skinned the cat a million different ways. And at one point I said to the client, I said, hey, whether it's me, the other guy you're talking to, or the third guy, it, it, it doesn't make a difference. This is not a pressure thing. You need to get going on this. Whoever you, whoever you want to do business with, you need to make a decision because you, right now you're out ahead of your contract closing date. You're fine. But if you, if you waste any more time, your back's going to be up against the wall. About 10 days later, he got back to me and said, okay, Brian, I'm going to send you all my paperwork uh, and we're going to do the deal with you. Well, paperwork starts coming in and I'm looking at, at, at his, he's a self-employed, um, the husband, it's a married couple, the husband's self-employed. His tax returns are not showing me the income that he's telling me on the phone. So at one point I said to him and I said, listen, um, I don't see a way that we're going to get this done without you having to first sell your house. Uh, I don't want to get in the weeds too much, but basically he was, he, he had been told by whoever pre-approved him in the first place, tell you what, you can go ahead and buy the new home without having to first sell the old home. You can swing both payments is what it amounts to. Based on the paperwork that I start receiving, it doesn't look that way at all. So I said to the buyer, I said, listen, I, I, me and the other guy, we all have the same rules. Our banks, we have the loan has to fit in the same box. So maybe he saw something that I didn't, but based on what I'm looking at, I don't see how you can buy the new house. You've got to sell the old one first. And then I said, I said, did he look at these same tax returns, the other loan officer that pre-approved you? Oh, no, no, he didn't look at them. We just took the, you know, this was based on a phone call, based on a conversation over the phone. Famous last words. I mean, it's the kiss of death. So um, back to the education piece. Again, it's, you know, I'm sure that his realtor heard, hey, he's pre-approved. That's fine. He's got a lender. It's not all lenders are created equal, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. So there's a lot of education to be done on the, on the professional side about what a good loan officer should be doing for you and for your client. Uh, at the I same run into that all the time where that self-employed individual you where they're self-employed has a business they get their tax return they have an llc might be a single member well where's the tax return for this they don't even understand disregarded entities they don't understand k1 so they don't understand schedule c e what it is then they're saying we'll just have your cpa write a letter saying that you know you're self-employed and you made this much and i'm not vouching for anything Correct. that somebody makes i'll say under my understanding, you're in the, this business, and that's what you made last year. I can't guarantee your stream of income, well, and it's it, hard it, for them. And I think having a company such as yours, as opposed to some of the large machines out there, online, whatever it may be, you 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 can touch that customer as opposed to going through departments. Well, yeah, not only that, and, and it's funny you mentioned that, Frank. Yeah, so self-employed borrowers are a potential can of worms. Let's just put it that way. If I get a client who comes to me and says, I want to buy a house, we start talking about his income. I make a hundred grand on a W2 at GM and I have a car payment. That's it. That's pretty much a lay down deal, right? I mean, that's, it's almost a no brainer. When you get these guys who are self-employed, I, I mean, I can't count on, on three hands, the number of, of clients I've worked with, they tell me their income is X and their tax returns show me, you know, X divided by four, right? So it's, there's, there's always this disconnect between the lifestyle that some, that a self-employed person might maintain and they might feel like they're earning 80,000 a year, let's say, but they, you know, there's a disconnect because it's, listen, when you're applying for a mortgage, the underwriter and you're self-employed, there's one story that tells your income. That's your federal tax return. It doesn't matter if, if, oh, well, Brian, I actually, I made 80 last year, but my accountant's really good. He got me down to 16. 
Well, guess what you make? Or it's all cash. You make 16. <laughs> exactly. Or it's all cash. Exactly. Um, so, it, so again, it's just a lot of education to be done on that. Um, and like you said, Dylan, a, a good loan officer is a partner in getting the deal done. A lot of buyers and through no, no, through no fault of their own, most people buy homes a few times in their lifetime. You know, investors obviously hopefully are buying and, you know, buying and selling more frequently and in, in higher numbers. But for the most part, the buyer kind of can't be blamed for that, right? It's our job as the professionals to, to educate them about how, how can't we, why this, why not that. But at the same time, as a professional, so they're the real estate agent, they really should have a better understanding that it, the process doesn't go real estate agent, find house, get under contract, then mortgage guy comes in and the real estate person falls off. It's not a baton we hand off. It's we should be working together from the from the very beginning of of meeting with the client even, so that we can ensure the whole process goes smoothly with no hiccups, right? But you know, a lot of people have yet to be taught. And I think a lot of that goes to people wanting to understand one thing or it's easy to, I have a house, I can live off cash, I can buy all the toys and stuff, but what happens when you want to buy that new house or, Precisely. or you get someone, well, I haven't reported this in so long, but I want to start real estate investing and well, you, you've got to establish this, repair your credit. These are all things that if somebody ventures into real estate investing, unless they get rid of a W2 job, but now you're going to need a person such as yourself that'll take that income into account because they don't That's have that. Exactly. But then someone that, well, I do a lot of cash work and I don't report it. I hear that from people sometimes. And from a tax standpoint, I can't even take them on as a client. If you tell me you made X, but you're only showing me this, I can't even look at a tax return that you're going to grossly understate, understate your sure. income. Exactly. Um, don't tell me that. But exactly. On the other side, when you want a mortgage, I'm not going to write a letter saying you made $200,000 and you only reported fifty. Well, exactly. And yeah, <laughs> it's not a good look for you. And again, at the same time, these, listen, there's, there's one standard by which a mortgage underwriter is going to conclude how much self-employment income you made last year. And that's your federal 1040. That's it. You know what I mean? Well, on the other side, it's if, if I write the letter now, now you're on the hook. I'm on the hook, you know, for, you know, uh, colluding to federally, uh, defraud of federally insured financial. It'll be fine. Frank. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. My realtor told me, yeah, my mortgage guy said, just write the letter. I hear yeah, that. Right. You know. Sure. <laughs> wow. That's pretty amazing. Um, so we're, we're slowly wrapping it up here <laughs> and I just want to go around the table and, and kind of do a little brag for each one of these guys. Um, so we've got the peanut galleries making jokes over there, and I'm not afraid to go off camera and talk about that. But um, <laughs> so so Paul does a lot of out of state investing. He does buy and holds. He actually has a kind of an Airbnb wing also. Um, so he's looking for private lenders. He's looking for kind of deal partners. Frank is a CPA, and he is looking for other investors like us to possibly do CPA work for. And he and his wife own a bookkeeping company. So. Well, Those she, are a couple. She, she does. She, so. yeah, she's the boss. We know that. We already. <laughs> they all know that. Uh, so Brian's a quote unquote mortgage guy. But if um, if you're looking for financing for investment properties, your personal home, or if you just need questions answered, I mean, you just heard him go off for 20 minutes about how important it is to actually understand how mortgages work. There, there are no short answers with me, Dylan. I there, apologize. Right. <laughs> we we see that. So he's going to get his own podcast soon. But. Um, yeah, so that's what each one of these guys do. And me personally, all I'm looking to do is to build the group. I'm wholesaling right now, doing a lot of buys and sells. So if there's anybody out there who is looking for help 
or if they find a deal they don't know what to do with, you guys can always come to me and I'm more than happy to lend a hand and maybe we can do a deal together. So um, I think with that, if you guys want to give out your contact information quick for those who are listening. Oh, my wife already gave it out. Okay. <laughs> uh, 248-705-8640. I'm on the group, uh, so feel free to to reach out to me. And uh, I want to be a helper, you know, uh, free information out there. So um, feel free to contact me. Frank Elsini, 586-805-1040. 1040. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Did you have to choose that? He picked oh, yeah. it. Was that on? That. Oh, he got it. That's, oh, nice. That's good. I should change mine to 1003. So oh. the, the whole application. <laughs> but um, wait on. So my name is Brian Mutter. You can call me at 248-956-0445. And again, I'm happy to help with whatever I can. I deal with a lot of investors um, who sort of back to this hand-holding from the inception of, of the, of the I-want-to-buy-a-house decision. Um, I'm happy to send them out. They can send me properties they want to look at. I can send them cash flow analysis, kick the tires, however I can help. All right, and I'm Dylan Tanaka. You guys all know where you can find me. You can uh, find me on Facebook. I've got 5,000 friends, unfortunately. So you can go to thedylantanaka.com and follow me, uh, or you find me here on the group. And with that, we will see you on another Roundtable podcast soon. You've been listening to the Michigan Real Estate Investor Network podcast. Let's call it the network. To subscribe to the show, go to www.michiganreinetwork.com where you can have the show sent right to your inbox. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to be on a future show, there's a link on the site to submit your info. The network is 100% focused on the Michigan real estate investing community. Whether you are brand new or a grizzled vet, we want you to be a part and share the love.